0: Daniel chapter 7, a couple of of introductory thoughts here tonight. We are transitioning from the historical part of Daniel to the prophetic part of Daniel. And yet what is contained in Daniel chapter 7, you will see in verse 1, chronologically fits between chapters 4 and five. The Bible isn't always in chronological order, but it is in some order. And the order that Daniel uh, chose to lay out his book was, we're going to deal with all the historical stuff in the first six chapters, and then we'll deal with all the prophetic stuff in the last six chapters of the book. So there is order to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, I believe, is the key to understanding all of prophecy. It is the skeleton in the Bible on which all the flesh of all other prophetic teaching from Scripture fits on. Whether it's from Ezekiel or Joel or Zechariah or the Re- book of Revelation or wherever, Daniel 7 is the skeleton upon which all other prophetic teaching Fits on. So if, if someone can get an understanding of Daniel chapter 7 and get a basic understanding of what Daniel's talking about here, then really all the other teaching on prophecy will fit somewhere into Daniel chapter 7. Now, because we're getting into such extensive, expansive teaching starting tonight, we're going to slow down. And instead of taking one chapter a week, uh, we're only going to look at, I think, the first... Uh, forget, 19 verses or something of, uh, no, 14 verses of Daniel 7 tonight, and then we'll deal with the second half of Daniel 7 next week. I also believe that if someone can get a hold of Daniel chapter 7, that Daniel chapter 7, its teaching, will hold you when everything else in the world seems to be falling apart. Because there is a lot of hope and encouragement in Daniel chapter 7, ultimately for those who have trusted in Christ and who are trusting in the Lord rather than any earthly kingdom or government or anything of earth. So with that, we begin Daniel chapter 7 this way. Daniel writes, In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. Filled with visions while he was lying on his bed, then he wrote down the dream in summary fashion. First of all, let's remember Daniel's name means God decides, and and in, in a sense, it is a reminder to us that God is in control. God is sovereign. God decides, and Daniel then it's 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 very. Uh, it's a very convenient thing, if you will, that God chose Daniel because his name really is a, an overarching theme of what's happening throughout history. And the fact that we've already seen, even from the practical historical section, that God decides when kingdoms rise up and kingdoms fall and when kings come to power and when kings don't. And, and so God decides this and uh, his name is reminding us of that. Um, the other thing I want to mention is, notice Daniel at the very end of verse 1 is only writing the essential content here, my translation, in summary fashion. He's not writing every detail. He may not have even remembered every detail about his dream, or the visions, if you will, within a dream, which by the way... The word dream really means a continuity of content, but the word vision means in successive stages. So though the dream was obviously very long, it was given to him piecemeal in visions. He didn't get it all at the same time. And, and God does that even with us as we read and study the word of God. God doesn't expect us, obviously, to soak up all of this at one time. It's given to us in bite-sized portions. It, it's given us in, in portions that we can... We can accept, we can receive, we can digest, if you will. We can grasp, we can comprehend. And that's part of, I think, the impression that uh, of why I wanted to sort of slow down a little bit. Because I don't want us to, even as I was reading and studying all this, it was like, whoa, there's so much to take in, if you will. Uh, In a sense, it's like going to the Grand Canyon and going, okay, there's just too much to take in. You know, I can't take it all in, so I'm going to start focusing here. So that's what we're going to try to do even tonight. That's what Daniel did. God gave him visions, if you will, within the dream so that it would be a little bit more manageable rather than overwhelming him. And that's part of the reason I think why even some Christians uh, stay away from books like Daniel and Revelation when it comes to prophecy because it just seems as they get into it and they start to read it, it just seems so overwhelming. Well, my goal has always been as a pastor who concentrates on teaching the word of God that I want to make this not overwhelming to you. And, and I think I can do that for this reason. If Jeff Royce can get some kind of understanding about this, then you can too. Okay? Uh, because I, I have to make it very simple, if you will, for me to be able to understand. And uh, because of that, I'm thinking that uh, you guys are sharper than me. So if I can get it, I, I think you're going to be able to get, get it as well. So then Daniel explains... I was watching in my vision during the night. Now, I want to stop there because this is an important concept. You're going to see this phrase used over and over again by Daniel throughout the prophetic section. I was watching. It may say in your translation, I kept looking or I was gazing intently. And the idea there is that Daniel really desires and wants to know about these things. And and isn't it interesting that it always seems to correspond that the more hungry we are, the more you and I have a desire to know what God's Word says, the more we know. It it really goes back to our hunger, our thirst, our desire to want to know God's Word. If if, if you and I have that kind of attitude and we come to God saying, I I want to know God and and I'm going to do what it takes on my part to, to do it, I think God begins to show us things through his spirit, from his word, because we've been diligent. And, and you get that diligent attitude from Daniel as he uses this phrase. I kept looking, I kept, in fact, all over uh, later on in the chapter, he says, I want this explained more. I, I can't quite get it yet. T- give me more. And and that's a great attitude. It reminds me of what Peter says to us as Christians, as newborn babes. Desire the pure milk of the word that you and I might grow by it. God wants to see that desire. And anyone who desires to know God's word, to know God's plan for the ages and whatever, I believe the spirit of God will meet us where we are. And in time, we will get more and more pieces of the puzzle, if you will, And a greater understanding. Now, I want to make this point though as well. Let's remember that the study of prophecy is not to be just an intellectual exercise. A lot of times over the years, I've run into at least many Christians who seem to go from one prophecy conference to another. And one book on prophecy to another. And one teaching on prophecy to another. And I realize... You know, here at the Oasis, we're going to be starting a short series on Sunday morning in May and Revelation and then switching over to Tuesday. So we're doing a lot, if you will, on prophecy even here. And yet, we, we cannot make the study of prophecy just about understanding it from a head point of view. It's got to affect us on the way we live our lives. It's got to give us hope. One of the reasons why God gives us things that are going to happen in the future before they happen is to give us, when we're stuck in the muck and mire of the world in which we live and we're seeing what's happening and. And, and the Middle East and all these other places that prophecy is there to, to reassure us, if you will, and give us hope that it's not always going to be like this and that God's plan is moving forward and that there's a plan for this world and for the nations. And, and, and instead of looking at it as the world is falling apart, actually the world is coming together if you will. And and so that's an important point. The other part of prophecy is the Bible teaches us that that this hope, in a sense, that we have about the future should be a purifying hope. In other words, that as we study what is going to truly happen uh, one day, it should cause us to, in a sense, uh, purify our lives, to, to live in a, a holy way, as God says, be holy for I am holy, and affect the way we live. So if the study of prophecy is just to understand what the beasts in the book of Daniel are, uh, that's not really the purpose of why God gave us those descriptions of the beasts. And as I've said many times before, there are many people who know all the beasts in the book of Daniel and they act like it too. And that's not why God gave us a description of the beasts, you see. So I want us, for the next couple of weeks in the book of Daniel, to even maybe ask God, God help me to come, not, not with my analytical uh, intellect and, and mind, just trying to soak up facts about your predictive prophecy of the end times, but help what I'm learning in the book of Daniel to have some meaning, to affect me in some way in my walk with you, or even as I look at the world and as I look at others. Because I don't know about you, but every time I study prophecy... It reminds me as a Christian how I need to be a light, how I need to be salt and how I should be looking at everyone that I come in contact with throughout the day and and to pray for people and, and especially those that don't know Christ and to be a witness. And to be willing to ask God every day that I get, get up, God, give me maybe somebody today or this week or this month or whatever that I can talk to about Jesus and help me to be sensitive to those that don't know Christ. Because without Christ, they're so helpless and they're so hopeless in this world. And, and I have the good news. And so help me like Paul to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. And so all these things should come into play in a very practical way when you and I study prophecy like Daniel. Now, one other thing. I obviously have done a lot of the connective study and all of this to come to some of the conclusions that I come to about these things in Daniel 7. It takes time to go back and compare Scripture with Scripture. So I'm going to give you the result of the hours of study that I have done. But as as at any time, I don't expect you to take my word for it. I encourage you to study this for yourself and to, to spend time studying this out so that you come to your own convictions or conclusions so again I also though want you to know that what I'm sharing with you on the surface may see may seem how did you get that from that and, and I can share a little bit of that but if I shared every step that I took to get to that conclusion we'd be in Daniel chapter 7 for the next year okay so we're, we're going to do a little bit of that but I just wanted to throw that out as well And the reason I do it at this point is because I want to direct your attention to what Daniel sees during the night. He sees four winds. Now the word wind in the Hebrew here also means spirits. And then he says, I see four winds or spirits of the sky. Again, the Hebrew word could also be interpreted or translated heaven. And every time this phrase, or over at least 75% of the time that the word winds are used in the Bible, it's not speaking about physical wind, it is speaking about the power of God moving on the world. And I believe that that's exactly in the context of Daniel chapter 7 what Daniel is seeing. He's not just seeing four winds from four different directions, He's seeing, in a sense, four spirits sent out from God to, as we're going to see here in a moment, stir up the great sea. So what we are seeing is really, again, the hand of God at work on earth. And and what you see in Daniel chapter 7 is always this connection between the throne of God and God in heaven and what's happening on earth. And, And what happens in heaven affects earth. What happens on earth affects heaven. And there is always that constant connection between heaven and earth. I mean, in the Gospels, Jesus even said that there's rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents and comes to Christ. So what happens on earth affects heaven. What happens in heaven affects earth. And we need to keep that in mind as we study prophecy. And here again... God's sovereignty is being shown us by Daniel as these four winds of the sky are now stirring up the great sea. The great sea. Let's talk about that for a moment. In the Bible, this speaks, if you study this and compare scripture with scripture, that most of the time the sea does not refer to just the ocean That in this context, it is referring to the restless humanity that exists on the earth. And that the sea is a great picture of that. The waves churning and restless and never at rest, if you will. And so what God is doing here is he's stirring up humanity through his spirit, if you will, through his power. Again, all as part of his plan. Well, folks, we can see that right now. I mean, we can see it all the time if we're looking for it. But right now, it's like we went from last year at this time where North Africa and the Middle East was sort of status quo and things were now all of a sudden all these different nations over there are starting to go through upheaval and turmoil and governments are being toppled and leaders are changing and all of a sudden things are stirred up right? And and we have to realize instead of freaking out and and all of that when these things happen, we've got to remember, wait a minute, God is on the throne. He's the one who decides. He's bringing all of this to pass. And and, and instead of looking at our news and reading our newspaper and, 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 and wondering what in the world is happening on earth and all this, that all of the restlessness of humanity is just illustrating what God, in a sense, has said throughout His Word, that without me in your life, without a personal relationship with Christ filling that void, you're going to be restless. You're never going to be at peace. You're you're never going to be at rest. You're never going to experience the peace of God, which is one of the gifts He gives us through that relationship with Christ. And so the restlessness of humanity is being stirred up. It was already there, And God is just now stirring up that restlessness. Then, Daniel says, I saw four large beasts come up from the sea. Now, these four beasts we're going to talk about in detail in just a moment. But Daniel goes on to say they were different from one another. Now, very interestingly, the word different there in the Hebrew also means disguised. And the reason why I tend to lean towards that description of these beasts is for this reason. If you compare the beasts that Daniel is going to talk to us about in Daniel chapter 7, you can compare those with the uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the world empires in Daniel chapter 2. And let's go back just for a moment and review the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about the great statue that he was given from God. Uh, These were going to be world empires throughout history. And and let's also remember that beginning in Daniel chapter 2 through Daniel chapter 7, this section of the book of Daniel was written in what? Aramaic. And the reason it's not written in Hebrew is because these Prophecies, if you will, this section of the book of Daniel primarily are dealing with worldwide stuff. When we go back and get back into Daniel chapter 8, God turns his attention back to Israel and, and the part that Israel will play in the last days. And that's why it switches back to Hebrew. So in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue and he can't figure out the interpretation. So Daniel is called and Daniel says, okay, here's what God gave me. Because I couldn't figure it out without God. God gave me this. The head Nebuchadnezzar is you. It's a head of gold. It represents Babylon. Here we are. You are now the world power. But Nebuchadnezzar, you're not, nor is this kingdom ever going to exist forever. After you is going to come another world power the Medes and the Persians. They are represented by the statue, the two arms, the Medes and the Persians. And they are silver. And then below that comes the next great world empire, the belly of bronze, which is uh, symbolic of Greece. And Alexander the Great, who conquered uh, a lot of the world during his brief 33 years. And then we went down to the legs of iron. And that was the Roman Empire. And then... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw these ten toes, and and these ten toes were different from a, any other empire. And and the thing about the ten toes was it wasn't just all iron; it was iron mixed with clay. And so you had Babylon, the head of gold. You had uh, you had uh, uh, Media, Persia, the arms. And, and torso of silver, you had Greece, the belly of bronze, you had the Roman Empire, the, the legs of iron, and then you had this other empire, the, the ten toes, the iron mixed with clay. And, and he describes them there then as this, in a sense, this great statue that is, you know, splendor and, and majesty, and, and, and many times when we look at the kingdoms of the world and we look at them strictly from an external perspective, how they look on the outside, wow, there's a lot to be impressed with. You know, big buildings and statues and monuments and glory, if you will, of man. The reason I'm going through all this is because in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel begins to see the dream of, in a sense, these same kingdoms, he, instead of describing them in splendor and majesty like a statue, begins to talk about them as beasts, as animals. And the reason he's doing that is because God is giving him insight into looking past the external splendor and majesty of man's kingdom and to see what it really is at its core, what it really is morally. It is nothing more than animalistic, if you will. It is is filled with power-hungry people who all they want is more Power and they want to devour more and they want to control more, and that's what's at the real heart of all these kingdoms throughout history. Now I don't I don't want to get too out of whack. But the, the reason I share this is, is it for me growing up so close and being there so many times, it is something that literally I feel. When I go to Washington, D.C., beautiful city. Like I said, I I grew up close to Washington. Been there many, many times. The monuments, all of that, beautiful. But there's also something very, very significant that when you visit that city and and when you walk through that city, I believe especially as a Christian, you you feel almost the, the power, if you will. And it's not a good feeling. It's almost a feeling of, of the hunger for power and, and dominance and all of that. And it's, it's, it's really something that you can almost sense there. And, and the reason I bring that up is because, in a sense, Daniel was confirming that That at the heart of all these worldwide kingdoms down through the ages, it's always been about power and control and swallowing up more and more and more. And that's why they're seen then as beasts, as animals, rather than just in their splendor. So let's look then for just a moment at each of these beasts. The first one was like a lion, verse 4, with eagle's wings and as I watched its wings were pulled off and it was lifted up from the ground it was made to stand on two feet like a human being and a human mind was given to it now again I can't go through all the steps of how I got there but I believe and again if you go back and compare Daniel 2 and other prophetic scriptures I believe that the beast he's talking about here is Babylon it's Babylon it was the kingdom that Daniel was presently in In fact, it's very interesting that if you've ever looked at pictures of ancient Babylon, the symbol of ancient Babylon that you will see the most is, guess what? A winged lion. You will see winged lions on all of the reliefs in ancient Babylon. And the interesting thing, I think, is as he's talking about its wings were pulled off, it was lifted up from the ground. I believe he's talking there about the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar himself. And then the fact that it was finally once Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and came back, he actually started acting more like a human being in his later years of ruling than he did before. And it was told us in history that when Nebuchadnezzar came back from his humbling by God, that he treated people within his kingdom in a much more humane, civilized way than he did up to that point. The second beast appeared like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and there were three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and devour much flesh. And again, if you compare this with other scriptures, which is the best way to to get to a right interpretation, I believe this is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And the reason why the bear was lifted up on one side was because the Persian side of that empire was stronger than the Medes side of the empire. So the Persians always sort of pulled it to one side. The three ribs, I believe, in its mouth were the three empires that were swallowed up by it as it came onto the world scene. Those three world empires before the Medes and Persians would have been Egypt, Lydia, not Libya, Lydia, which is in western Turkey, and then obviously Babylon. And then, verse 6. After these things, as I was watching, another beast like a leopard appeared with four bird-like wings on its back. This beast had four heads and ruling authority was given to it. This beast, if you will, or kingdom, I believe is Greece. Now, a leopard is a carnivore, just like the bear and the lion. But the thing that most people talk about when they talk about the leopard is its speed. And we know in studying the history and the exploits of Alexander the Great that nobody conquered more of the world in less time than Alexander the Great. In fact, in this passage, the Bible says this this leopard had four wings. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Babylonian kingdom only had two. Two wings, eagle's wings, on on the lion, but the leopard had four wings because it's it speaks to us about how swift Alexander conquered the world, and yet in thirty at at thirty three he died very very suddenly. Then what's the four heads? Well, because Alexander wasn't planning on dying at at thirty three, and and they had Greece had no uh, something set up for what would happen if. He died that, in a sense, the Greek empire was taken over by four of his generals, which I believe is illustrated by the four heads. Now, here's a key phrase, though. Again, look at the end of verse 6. Ruling authority or dominion was given to it. See, even in our history books and even with Alexander himself, he believed that, that he was able to conquer all of this world because of his intellect and his intelligence and, and his military strategy and all of this. When the Bible clearly tells us the reason he was able to do that is because God allowed him to do that because that was in God's plan. God gave it to him. All these world kingdoms think that they come on the world scene, that they get to where they are by themselves. Never giving any thought that there is a God who decides behind it all. And that's what Daniel's pointing out. God is on His throne at all times. He never leaves. And what happens in heaven affects earth. What happens on earth affects heaven. And Alexander was able to do what he did because he was allowed to by God. We need to remember that even as we look at what's happening around the world today as well. God isn't up there wringing his hands wondering, Oh my goodness, what am I going to do in Libya? God already knows what's going to happen. Now, our president and other rulers in the country and NATO and they they can be scratching their heads wondering how in the world they're going to handle this mess. But God's not worried about how this is all going to turn out. He's already got it all figured out. So then we go to verse 7. After these things, as I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared. And notice, unlike the three subsequent kingdoms, that Daniel can't find any animal in the animal kingdom to describe this fourth kingdom. It's unlike any other and he says it is dreadful and terrible it literally in the Aramaic it causes fear and terror and it's very strong it had two large rows of iron teeth and it devoured and crushed and anything that was left it trampled with its feet and it was different from all the beasts that came before it and it had ten horns Now, folks, I think that this may be the most confusing part of the prophecy for this reason. We know in comparison to Daniel chapter 2 that the fourth kingdom in line was the Roman Empire. And that certainly fits some of this here. Because, again, notice that the fourth empire was described as iron. And we know that even the Roman uh, military was described in our history books as the iron legions. One of the things that made... Uh, The Roman army, so formidable, was their weapons of iron and their their, uh, military armor of iron. So that fits. The thing, though, that's different about Daniel 7 and Daniel 2 is this. As Daniel's trying to describe this, he's describing a fourth kingdom. But he's looking past, for the most part, the historical Roman empire that, from Daniel's perspective, none of them except Babylon had come on the scene yet. And he's going past the Roman Empire to this final world empire that that will come out of what we call the revived Roman Empire, which is why it's connected, though, to Rome. And that causes confusion because in Daniel 7, there's only four beasts until Christ's kingdom, the fifth kingdom that comes to earth, that crushes all other kingdoms. And I think if we can get that straight, that as Daniel here is describing this fourth beast, remember this, he's not, when he describes this, primarily then talking about the Roman Empire. He's primarily looking past the Roman Empire to a final world empire, folks, that hasn't come yet. Okay? It hasn't come yet. reason we know that is because this empire is going to be made up of the ten toes, or ten kings, representing ten kingdoms, you see. And we're going to see in a moment that out of that is going to come another king who I believe is the Antichrist. I hope some of this is giving some kind of meaning. Anyway, let's move on. After these things I was watching in the night visions, a fourth beast appeared, one dreadful, terrible, very strong different from all the beasts that came before it it had 10 horns and as i was contemplating the 10 horns verse 8 another horn a small one came up between them but literally among them or subsequent to them now the reason that's important again is because that that's going to that's going to shape our whole interpretation if these 10 toes were 10 kingdoms that were one after another, and then the 11th horn came all the way after these 10 kingdoms, then you and I are going to have a real hard time figuring that one out. And even the liberal scholars who don't buy into the literal Daniel and stuff, they'll even go back and try to come up with 10 Roman Caesars to fit in there, and it just doesn't work. So why that's important is because that what the Bible is saying is at the end of time there is going to be a new world order come on the scene. It's going to be made up of ten kings, ten kingdoms represented, and amongst them, at the same time, out of that is going to ascend this other little horn that's insignificant at first. But then, as later on Daniel says, it will grow in power and actually be more powerful than all the other ten kings and kingdoms combined. Because it's going to be supernaturally energized by Satan himself. And that's what, that's what really catches Daniel's attention. Because it came up among them. And then notice, three of the former horns of the ten were torn out by the roots to make room for it, or as a result of it. And this horn had eyes resembling human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogant things. Now these characteristics at the end of Daniel chapter 7 verse 8 speak of an individual, an individual personage, not an entire kingdom. But notice verse 9. While I was watching, thrones were set up. And the scene now shifts from earth to heaven. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. We sang about the Ancient of Days tonight. The only time this phrase is used to describe God in the Bible is here in the book of Daniel. Why call him the Ancient of Days? Because again, it speaks of his eternal nature. That, that God has no beginning, he has no end. He's always been, he always will be. In contrast to the earthly kings and kingdoms and rulers and powers who come on the world scene and even may rule, like Alexander. Vast amounts of the earth. They're soon cut off, they're gone from the earth, and someone else comes up behind them. The only eternal kingdom and the only eternal being is God Himself. So the thrones were set, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His attire was white like snow, picturing His purity, His holiness. And the hair of his head was like lamb's wool, picturing his wisdom. And notice his throne was ablaze with fire, and its wheels were all aflame, and a river of fire was streaming forth. Folks, sometimes when things seem very chaotic on earth, begin to meditate on what the Bible teaches about the throne of God. Fire is symbolic of of God's glory and holiness and judgment. And the Bible says, our God is a consuming fire. And so notice, Daniel goes on to say, this fire proceeds from His presence. Many thousands were ministering to Him. Many tens of thousands stood ready to serve Him. Think about that for a moment. The court convened. Literally, the judgment or justice of God, and the books were open. Then I kept on watching, and the reason Daniel was was fixated on this little horn, at at first this insignificant king that was going to rise up amongst the other ten, was because of the arrogant words of the horn that he was speaking. That in a sense, Daniel never heard someone speak such big, bold, arrogant words blasphemous words like this one was speaking. And he says, I was watching until the beast was killed and its body destroyed and thrown into the flaming fire. Now don't miss what Daniel is really saying here. That as great as this person is, as far as how powerful and all of that goes, it's nothing when God says... You're gone. Yeah. In fact, listen to this verse from the book of Revelation, which I think is parallel to what Daniel is seeing here. Now the beast was seized and along with him the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire burning with sulfur. Revelation 19 verse 20. Verse 12 back of Daniel 7. We're going to wrap this up in just a moment. As for the rest of the beast, their ruling authority had already been removed, though they were permitted to go on living for a time and a season, simply meaning that that remnants of each of these world kingdoms continued to exist in the kingdom that took it over in some way. And I was watching in the night visions. And with the clouds of the sky, clouds always are talking about the glory of God and the coming of Jesus Christ. One like a son of man was approaching. We know that Jesus Christ's favorite term to call himself in the Gospels was son of man. He took that from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. This phrase means two things, primarily. It means that Jesus Christ embodied what a true man or human being was meant to be when God created him in his humanity. Yes, Jesus Christ is 100% God, but in his humanity, as he lived as a man, he was the way man was meant to be when God created him in the Garden of Eden. That's one of the things Son of Man means. The other thing it means is that he truly identified in every way with man when he, the God Son of God, became man. And we know that. That's why Hebrews tells us he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he thirsted, he hungered, he felt pain, he was betrayed, he felt emotional, physical, and spiritual abuse. He identified with man. But notice he was approaching it's very interesting that this word in the New Testament is used in the phrase Maranatha, which means our Lord comes. He went up to the Ancient of Days and was escorted before Him, and to Him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. Literally, in the Aramaic, a kingdom. And notice in verse 14, all peoples, nations, and language groups were serving Him. The Messianic kingdom will be a worldwide kingdom. And what are we going to do in that kingdom? We're going to serve Jesus Christ. People say, what are we going to do all that time? Well, first of all, in the 1000-year millennial kingdom, we're going to serve Jesus Christ. What are we going to do for all eternity? We're going to serve. There's going to be a purpose for us. We're each going to have responsibilities, and we're going to get to that next week. Hope you'll come back next week. Let me wrap this up. One more phrase. His authority Literally, His sovereignty and dominion is eternal. It is forever and will not pass away. In contrast to, I don't care how many human kingdoms and and superpowers and whatever have risen on earth, they will all pass away one day. The only kingdom that's going to last is the kingdom of God, period. His kingdom will not be destroyed, hurt or harmed in any way. And I think an important question at this point as we stop and pause here tonight is are you part of his kingdom? Cuz if you're part of just an earthly kingdom, that kingdom's going to pass like all the other kingdoms have down through history. The only kingdom that's going to last is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And We are told in the Bible, in Revelation 5.10, that we will reign with Christ on earth. It's not just a heavenly kingdom, it's literally going to be an earthly kingdom, which is why Jesus said, when he taught us how to pray, pray this way. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. He was talking there about praying for the earthly kingdom of Jesus Christ to come. One other passage and then we'll close in prayer. Turn to the book of Colossians in closing tonight. The book of Colossians in the New Testament. Chapter 1, verse 13. Here's what Paul says. He delivered us, speaking to us as believers, he delivered us from the Of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son He loves. See, we're not born naturally into the kingdom. We have to be transferred into that kingdom by placing our personal trust and faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And when we do that, He delivers us from the powers of darkness and transfers us into that kingdom, so that you and I are even part of that kingdom, though it's not visible here yet. We are already part of that kingdom because we are in Christ. We will one day rule and reign with Christ ourselves. This is what we get to look forward to. This world's not going to be in the turmoil it's in right now. But what God is doing is allowing man to run things his own way. And basically what God has said and what man doesn't realize is when man gets his own way and runs things the way he wants to, he runs them right into the ground. And God has to go, are you done now? Well, you're going to be done because here I come. And now I'm going to set up my kingdom because I've given you thousands of years to try to get this right and you just keep making it worse. So I'm coming. Are you part of the kingdom? If not, it's just a matter of asking the Lord to come into your life and commit your life to Him. If you are part of the kingdom, I don't know about you, but especially in the days in which we live, that thought and that truth alone just makes me want to skip out of here tonight. Because with all the the turmoil and junk and everything that's going on in the world, I have that hope, like you have that hope in your heart, that we know the best is yet to come. The Lord of glory is coming. Are you ready for His return? Let's close in prayer. God, thank you for reminding us tonight That you are eternal. Lord, as we put our trust and faith in earthly kingdoms and in men and women and temporary things, God, help us to see how foolish that is. That the only place that we should place our faith and trust is in you. You're the only one who will never let us down. You're the only one whose word is always reliable. You're the only one that will be there forever. You're the only one who's ever been. And God, help us just to be reminded that in this world where things are being stirred up, where the restlessness of humanity we're seeing on an everyday basis, God, help us to rest in you and in your word. And help us, Lord, to use the knowledge and the hope and the peace that we have to to share it with others who are so so bothered and so anxious and so filled with anxiety about what's going on in the world. And help us be able to give to them that hope and peace that, that this isn't the way it's always going to be and there's a much better day coming. A day where instead of man ruling, Jesus Christ is going to rule and righteousness is going to reign. So, God, help us to live with that in view. Even tomorrow, even this rest of this week, whatever we hear, help us to remember, God, that you are on your throne, you are the ancient of days. And help us to see things, God, from your perspective rather than from ours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, folks. We'll see you next week.